Please turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 15, and we left off in verse 18. John 15, and we're in verse 18. So on Wednesday nights, we're going through the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And so if you're new to Wednesday nights, we welcome you. Uh, Our children's ministry does do Awana on Wednesday nights, which was geared towards them memorizing uh, scripture. So Wednesday nights is a great night for us to gather together. I enjoy it because it's a little bit of a recharge in the middle of the week as you're plowing through the week. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the songs that Alex shared with us and the glory of meeting you, Lord, on the shores of eternity and being your bride and someday being joined together with the body of believers. And God, we ask that you would illuminate your word, that you'd speak your word to our hearts, that you'd give us refreshment, that you'd give us challenge that we would hear from you. Father, I pray that you would set me aside and give me strength and teaching your word. Let's just take a few minutes to wait upon the Lord. We all bring something on our hearts this evening, so let's give that to the Lord in just the next few moments. Father, we thank you that you love us, and that love is never changing, that we fail, and yet you redeem us, you glorify us, you sanctify us. We're here to meet with you in Jesus' name. Amen. So having a great conversation this week about God's word. And if you look at God's word from a large perspective, more from maybe a 10,000 feet view, you can't help but notice God's grace. I think a lot of times we get caught up on all of the things that we need to do and we should do. But if we're honest with ourselves and honest with our with others, we fail at those things, don't we? But it's always on our minds. You need to do better. You, you need to try harder. And a lot of that is then translated into the family and family relationships. And you've got to be the perfect husband and the perfect wife and the perfect dad and the perfect mom and raise perfect little kids and all this perfection, perfection, perfection. But if you look at the families in the Bible, they were messed up from day one, weren't they? I mean, the first set of brothers, Cain and Abel, ends in homicide. And that's got to be pretty discouraging to the first parents. And you just continue to read about these families in, in Scripture. And we know this great man that built the ark, Noah, after he got off of the boat, he got so drunk he hardly knew where he was. And his son comes in and thinks it's so funny, he's got to go get his two brothers to say, here's your chance to see dad drunk and naked, right? And that's a family in scripture. And it goes on to find Joseph with his brothers. They want to kill him. They decide not to kill him. So they sell him as a slave. I mean, as you read, even just through Genesis, you see all of these broken people and it continues all the way throughout the Old Testament. And it's more about a story of God's redemption, than our perfection, isn't it? That's the overarching theme is that we need Jesus. And we can't miss that grace. It's that saving grace. It's that continual work of God's grace in our hearts and our lives. And I I hope you know that as you approach the scriptures because it can very much become condemnation instead of this gift that God has given to us in his love. 
And as we approach this section in John, it's Jesus' last words to his disciples. He's about ready to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane to be crucified. It's filled with heart. It's filled with application. Before we were into the holidays, Kent took us through the first half of John 15 with Jesus being the vine which is so important that we're connected to Jesus through faith, that we trust and we abide in him. As we abide in Jesus Christ, we focus on Christ, we're obedient to Christ, the fruit comes in and through our lives. Once the fruit starts to come into our lives, also the persecution comes. As we get into the second half of chapter 15, Jesus is trying to prepare the disciples for the persecution that they will go through. So join me in verse 18. It says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Part of the life of a disciple is that they're going to be hated. We know from church history, all of the disciples were martyred, except for John the apostle. He was boiled in hot oil, and God saved his life. He persevered preserved his life for perseverance. So all of them would go through difficulty. And Jesus says, I want you to understand the issue. I want you to understand what is going on, is that they hated me first. If you're hated for your love for Christ, realize that Christ was hated first. In verse 19, if you were of the world, the world loves its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Before you knew Christ as your savior, you're swimming in this stream of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and the world loves its own. If you continue in that stream, you're not gonna experience any persecution. You're not gonna rock the boat at all. But Jesus says that he's called us out of the world. Not in the sense that we're to isolate ourselves, or that we're not to live in this world, but we have a different set of priorities. It's the word of God. It's Jesus Christ. So once we start living for Jesus Christ, we're swimming upstream, and the world, therefore, is going to hate you. So this is good news for the new year. If you follow Jesus Christ, if you abide in Jesus Christ, you can expect to be hated. All right, Lord bless you. Have a great night. We'll see you next week. In verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So if they persecuted Christ, they're going to persecute us because we're not greater than our master. Christ is perfect. God in human flesh, ultimate love, but yet rejected. If they rejected Christ, persecuted Christ, killed Christ, what do we expect for our lives as well? This kind of goes in the face of a prosperity, health and wealth type of gospel. If you're familiar with that teaching, it's if you follow Christ, if you have enough faith, then everything's gonna go perfect in your life without difficulty. The only problem with that is look at the life of Christ. Last time I read it, he was crucified. He was hated. And what Jesus said is in this life, you're going to have persecution. You're going to have trial if you live godly. And what Jesus is saying here to us is that we should expect that opposition as we follow in the footsteps of Christ. But there's a promise here in the positive as well in verse 20 that if they kept Christ's word, they're going to keep your word as well. So you may be persecuted like Christ, But if you go out with the authority of Christ and you share the word of God, there's going to be people that are going to respond to the word of God and they'll keep the word of God. They'll trust the word of God. So verse 21, 
But all these things that we will do to you, but all of these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know him who sent me. So any kind of persecution that you experience in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, it's because of one reason and one reason only. They don't know the Father. That's why they rejected Jesus. They don't know the Father. So keep that in perspective. Keep that in view. When we start to get frustrated with them or lash out at them or how could you treat me this way? Why don't you enjoy this fruit that my life is now producing because of Jesus? I would think that you would appreciate the love, the joy, the peace, the kindness, the patience. It's almost a shock to our system to be hated and to be persecuted. We need to understand the root of the problem. They don't know the Father. They don't know the love of the Father. Because if they knew the Father, then they wouldn't be treating Jesus this way or Christ followers this way. So we pray that they would know the Father. We pray that they would come to know the love of God. In verse 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. They're accountable to Christ's coming. They have seen the works of Christ. They're going to witness the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. And Jesus says, if I wouldn't have come, they wouldn't have been without, they would have been without excuse. But since I came, they are held accountable. And everyone since the death and resurrection of Christ is held accountable to Christ. In verse 23, he who hates me hates my father also. Some people want to separate the father and Jesus, don't they? They say, well, I'm, I'm into Jesus, but I'm not into the father. Or I'm into the father, but I'm not into Jesus. And what Jesus says here, if you hate me, you hate the Father. If you hate the Father, you hate Jesus because they're linked together. Verse 21, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin, but they have seen and also hated both me and my Father. They're accountable to his coming, but they're also accountable to his works. They the works that I've done, if they hadn't seen the works that I've done. If you've been studying through us with John, maybe you remember some of those works that Jesus did, that John focuses on, turning the water into wine, healing the blind man, Lazarus being raised from the dead. Jesus says, because of these works that I've done, they are held accountable. In verse 25, but this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which was written in their law. They hated me without a cause. The hatred that Christ received was prophesied in the Old Testament. Jot down, maybe you have it in your margins if you've got a Bible with cross-references. It's Psalm 69, verse 4. David writes this. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I've stolen nothing, I still must restore it. David experienced those coming against him and betraying him, even his own son trying to overthrow him as the king. And ultimately that pointed to the rejection that Christ would go through. They hated him without a cause. Every rejection that we go through in life and much of the rejection that we go through, we have a part to play in it. Somewhere along the line, I'm part of the story that led to that rejection. But sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes we're rejected without cause. Either way, whether I'm part of the problem or not, is each rejection gives us an opportunity to fellowship with Jesus Christ and his sufferings. Don't think it didn't hurt. Don't think it didn't break Christ's heart to come to his own and be rejected by them. 
to be betrayed by Judas. It broke his heart. And we come to Jesus Christ when we experience the pain of rejection for his comfort. Times in our lives before we knew Christ as our Savior, we hated Christ without a cause. We rejected Christ without a cause, but yet he loved us. In verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The placing or the context of scripture is so important. Here Jesus is saying, it's gonna get tough. You're gonna be persecuted. You're gonna be hated. And then he begins to talk about the Holy Spirit. And here's the hope in our text. Not that our circumstances will get easier or our culture necessarily is gonna get more friendly to Christianity. But here's the encouragement that the strength of the spirit within is greater than the pressure from without. And we look at all of the persecution, we look at the difficulty, and these disciples would look at the challenges ahead. They may wonder, how am I going to get through it? But the truth that we have to stand on is the power of the Spirit that's within us is stronger than the opposition that's outside of us. That's the thing about the fish that God's created deep in the ocean, these amazing creatures. Scientists have found out that the pressure within inside these fish is greater than the pressure from without and that enables them to withstand these deep depths into the ocean. So as we go into these deep depths of trial, whether they're situations in our lives or persecution, we then have to press into our helper. Those difficulties cause us to look to the Holy Spirit in a greater way. And what I hope in our time in these few chapters is we come to understand the Holy Spirit in a greater way, that you're not nervous or confused about the Holy Spirit, but you welcome the work of the Holy Spirit in your life because the Holy Spirit is the helper. In the Greek, it's parakletos. It means one who comes alongside to help. A counselor is also what the Holy Spirit is referred to. So the context is the disciples are going through this persecution, this rejection, but here's the Spirit to help. Here's the Spirit to help them navigate through the difficulties. So what are you going through tonight? I know you're going through stuff. What's the difficulty in your life? We're here hungry for Christ. And are we allowing the helper to come and guide us as we try to navigate through life? I don't know about you, but I need the power of the Holy Spirit. I need the help of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 5, when it says walk in the Spirit, what does that look like? It's where the Spirit is guiding us and directing us. The Spirit's saying, Eric, don't say that. You need to listen right here. Okay, this is something that you need to say. So slow down here. Remember this verse? Remember that encouragement? See that person over there? Go talk to him. It's in step with the Holy Spirit. It's allowing the Holy Spirit to, to be our helper and empower us. Without this, we can't live the Christian life. There's no way. You look at the commands that are in Scripture, it's impossible. How are we to even have agape love? God's type of love for one another. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's only through the help of the Holy Spirit. How do you continue to love a coworker that completely rejects the gospel and makes fun of you every time you open your mouth about Jesus? It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit. How do you continue to love inside of your own family when you experience rejection? It's only through the help of the Holy Spirit. This is continual, this is moment by moment, us in a place of brokenness saying, Holy Spirit, help me. Holy Spirit, I want to listen to your voice. 
The Spirit comes to help. Also, the Holy Spirit is sent to us from the Father, whom I shall send to you from the Father. The Holy Spirit's a gift from the Father. And is the Father going to give us anything that's not good? Right? The Holy Spirit's going to only give us what's good. Luke's gospel tells us if we being evil know how to give our gifts, our kids good gifts, how much more so does our heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? You can trust the work of the Spirit in your life because it's from the Father. Also, the Spirit is truth, the Spirit of truth. God's Spirit is gonna lead us in the word. God's Spirit's gonna teach us the word. God's Spirit's gonna show us where truth is and truth lacks in our lives. The Spirit is truth, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. Again, an emphasis of coming from the Father. And then also, the Spirit testifies of me, testifies of Jesus. How do you know that the Spirit is working after believers are gathered together? Is it the style of the worship? Does that indicate whether the Spirit is working or or moving? Is it if the worship is in hymns or the worship is in rock and roll? Is the Spirit working if the pastor gets really passionate and starts screaming and yelling and getting red in the face? Is that how we know that the Spirit of God is is moving when we, we gather together? Do we know that the Spirit of God is moving if I roll on the floor and start flapping around and laughing really loud? (laughs) Oh, it's a Spirit-filled service. How how do we know? The way we know is at the end of the service if people are going away talking about Jesus. If Jesus is glorified and lifted up. In the songs, were they pointing to Jesus? Were they causing us to think and meditate and making much of Jesus? then the Spirit of God is working. And when the Word of God is opened, is there an emphasis on Christ, Christ being magnified and His work for us? Then we know the Spirit of God is moving. So you have to monitor not by the emotions, but what's the end result? Is the end result that people are more in love with Jesus Christ? Now, is there anything wrong with passionate preaching? Absolutely not, if it points to Jesus Christ. But if it's just a bunch of emotion, then you went to a pep rally and you got really pumped up. There is something wrong with holy laughter because we don't find it anywhere in the Bible. There's a lot of things we find in the Bible, but we don't find holy laughter. And how does that edify one another as we get together as a body of believers? You don't want to hear me laugh for 45 minutes. You should have seen how uncomfortable you were when I was laughing for 10 seconds, right? (laughs) And there's nothing wrong with laughter, but we don't see the gift of holy laughter in the Bible. It's not one of the gifts that God gives from from the Spirit. So I don't think the Spirit of God is moving when a bunch of people uncontrollably laugh for an hour and a half and walk away and say, wow, wasn't the Spirit good? No, I want Jesus Christ to be glorified. So we can look for ourselves and go, when the Spirit's moving, he's going to testify of Jesus. It's always going to point back to Jesus Christ. In verse 27, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The Spirit bears witness, but also the disciples bear witness of Jesus Christ. These things I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. Trying to warn, trying to catch them in a place or prepare them and put them in a place where they're not going to trip, where they're not going to stumble. This is where I think it applies to our lives as well. 
is don't be surprised if you get persecuted once you start following Jesus Christ. Be prepared for that. Understand that that's something that Jesus told us and and warned us about. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you thinks he offers God service. And the disciples lived through that. And these things they will do to you because they didn't know the Father nor me. But these things I told you, that when the time comes, you remember that I told you. And the things I did say to you at the beginning because I was with you, part of preparing them so that they wouldn't stumble. So we're in chapter 16, if I lost you. We're in verse 5. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. They're trying to understand where Christ is going. Christ has said over and over, this is permanent. You're not going to see me. And their heart is filled with sorrow. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Jesus makes a mind-blowing statement here, doesn't he? And he says, it's actually beneficial for me to go away so that you can receive the Holy Spirit, so that this helper will come to you. The helper can't come unless Jesus is crucified, rises from the dead, goes to the Father, sends to the Father. The Father sends the Holy Spirit. Up until this point, their relationship with Christ is external. They're with Christ, but Christ isn't in their heart to transform them. That's the power of the gospel, that Christ is in you. And also that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. So now we have a power that's not our own. It's the power of the Spirit of God living inside of us. So now it's to the advantage of the disciples for Jesus to go so that the Spirit can live inside of them, so that the helper can come inside of them. One of the beautiful transformations in the Bible is Peter before and after the death, the resurrection, and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. You know his story. He's struggling. He's denying that he ever knew Christ. Then after he received the power of the Holy Spirit, he's not a perfect man by any means. He still had a hard time hanging out with Gentiles. He even had to be corrected by the Apostle Paul because Paul's saying, you're eating with Gentiles and then Jews came in and you separated yourself from the Jews. But he was a changed man. He stood strong on Pentecost and preached the gospel in the same location with the men that had crucified Christ. What had happened? It was the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's an encouragement to us to give us hope and go, man, if God can transform Peter, he can transform me as well. A lot of us would go, if I could go back to when Jesus lived, I would love to be a disciple and walk and talk with Jesus for three years. But Jesus says it's actually to your advantage that he would go away so that the spirit could be inside of you and the spirit of God could bring revelation and bring change in our lives. In verse eight, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe of me, in me, of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So here's the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of someone who doesn't know Christ. He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Three things. Now the reason that the Holy Spirit has to convict of sin 
because they do not believe in me. And isn't that true? The world rejects Christ. They don't believe in Christ. And they have to be convinced, they have to be convicted that they're sinners. We need to pray and allow the Holy Spirit to do his job. Amen? Amen. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict people of sin. We need to share truth. We need to share the word of God in love. But it's not us that brings the conviction. It's the Holy Spirit. So you may be sharing the gospel with someone and sharing that they're a sinner and their need for forgiveness and God's grace. But as we're sharing, we need to pray that the Holy Spirit would convict, that the Holy Spirit would be the one that would bring the weight of that message. I don't know if you've had those times in your life in that conversion and coming to know Christ, but all of a sudden your sin became serious in your perspective and there was some weight to it and you understood that you sinned against a a holy God and it broke your heart in what you had done. And prior to that, there was no conviction, there was no care, there there was nothing in your heart and life that said, I'd done anything wrong. What was that? That was the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we need to allow the Spirit to do that work. The Spirit's the one that convicts of sin and also of righteousness. And why is there need for righteousness? Because I go to the Father. So Jesus is righteousness here on on the earth. And as he ascends to the Father, the Spirit convicts people of their need of righteousness. And then finally of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged, and that's Satan and bringing judgment upon Satan. In verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. (laughs) I like that about Jesus. He feeds us like goldfish. (laughs) He feeds us as we have appetite and we have understanding. So, okay, guys, this is all you can handle right now. Peter, I'm starting to see your eyes glaze over. I'm losing you guys. So I'm just gonna give you a little bit at a time. This is all you can take right now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you in all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. So this tells us a lot about the work of the spirit in our lives. Again, he's referred to as the spirit of truth, and he'll guide you into all truth. This is very important as we study God's word. Many times you'll hear me pray it, before we start a Bible study, that the Holy Spirit would teach us, that the Father would send the Spirit to lead us and guide us in truth, because we need the work of the Spirit to teach us the Word of God. And as you spend time in God's Word on your own, it can be so frustrating, can it? You get into it, and you're reading it, and you're like, I don't understand this. It's all Greek to me, right? Well, the New Testament was written in Greek, but you're reading an English translation. This might as well be read written in another language, make sure that you ask that the Spirit of God would teach you, that the Spirit of God would open up your heart and your mind, but also be encouraged. Every one of us be encouraged. If you know Christ as your Savior, the Spirit of God lives inside of you, and you can understand the Word of God. You don't need a pastor. You don't need a commentary. There's a place for a good, sound, biblical teaching but you should be able to open up the book of John and read it and get stuff out of it for yourself. And if you're wondering, did I come up with something kind of weird or kind of odd? Then that's when you go and you check it off of a good commentary or you you check it off of a good pastoral teaching through that book. But one of the biggest lies that you could ever believe is that you can't understand the Bible, that you can't study the Bible for yourself. There has been reformation and revival that's taken place when there's a movement back to the word of God, 
when people get into God's word and they don't look to some man-made layer between them and God and think, well, I've got to look to this person. I've got to look to this priest. I've got to look to this pastor. No, you look to Jesus Christ and you look to his word. Amen? Amen. Are we agreed on that? So be encouraged. Get in God's word. Allow the spirit of truth to guide you. And then notice what it says. He will not speak on his own authority But whatever he hears, he will speak and tell you things to come. So the Spirit is never going to speak anything that's contradictory to the Father or to the Son, Jesus Christ. So if the Spirit is leading us in something that doesn't line up with the Word of God, it's not the Spirit. Let me say that again. If the Spirit of God, quote unquote, is leading us to do something that's not in the Word of God, it's not the Holy Spirit. It may be some other spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit. Because a lot of times people have some kind of spiritual experience or an emotional experience, and they come and say, well, the Holy Spirit told me to do this. And you get confused, don't you, when you're listening to something like that. You go, well, wait a second. That doesn't line up with the Bible anywhere. How can that be the Spirit of God? The Spirit doesn't speak on his own authority. The Spirit's not going to come and say something that's contradictory to the Father. The Spirit will lead us. The Spirit will speak to us, but it will be in line with the Scripture. It'll be in line with the Father and with Jesus. In verse 14, he will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. So again, we see the role of the Spirit is to glorify Jesus, to testify of Jesus, to make much of Jesus. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. There is a wonderful unity inside of the Trinity. So the Father's given everything to the Son, and the Son is given everything to the Spirit, and the Spirit is sharing with the body of Christ and revealing Jesus Christ to us. If you're looking for a real key and in insight and in relationship, look to the Trinity because there's no selfishness in the Trinity and because of that, they have a perfect harmony and unity. In verse 16, a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. Now how confusing is that if you're the disciples that are hearing that for the first time? So when exactly will we see you? You know, we're not gonna see you for a while. Are we playing hide and go seek or what exactly is happening here? And Jesus goes on to explain in verse 17. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, what is it that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So what is he talking about? You know, what does this mean? They said, therefore, what is this that he says, a little while, we do not know what he's saying. Do you ever have those moments with the Lord? I don't know what you're saying. I don't know what you're talking about. Love that the disciples just ask. Verse 19. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him and said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? And he repeats it. A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned in to joy. Jesus hears them talking amongst themselves and says, guys, why don't you just come and talk with me? He's speaking of his crucifixion and his resurrection. The disciples are going to be filled with sorrow, but the world's filled with rejoicing, aren't they? 
They're, they're ecstatic at the crucifixion of Christ, but the hearts of the disciples are filled with joy, but that joy is turned into sorrow. Imagine what the resurrection was like for the disciples. To get to the tomb, Peter and John, and find that the tomb was empty. Mary Magdalene remaining at the tomb, being the first to see the resurrected Savior. For Christ to appear to them, to break bread with them, the joy that came over their, their hearts. In verse 21, a woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow. Yes and amen, moms that are out there. Because her hour has come, but as soon as she's given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish. That's arguable a little bit, but <laughs> for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, I know that you moms do remember the pain of childbirth, but the principle here is true of what Jesus is saying is the joy overwhelms the sorrow. And it was worth it. You go, wow, this is an amazing gift that has come into the world. And God's blessed us with four beautiful children. And each one of them, that was an amazing moment in my life. You know, apart from being saved and getting married, having those kids and watching them come into the world and taking their first breath. And man, it's, it's worth it. And you're just like, easy for you to say, I didn't have to do the delivery. But <clears throat> the joy of the life coming into the world. And that's what Jesus is saying. The sorrow is going to come upon you, but the sorrow that you're going through is going to be worthwhile because it's bringing life. Let me ask a deeper question. Do you believe that God's sovereign hand is working through the midst of the sorrow that you're currently going through? And understanding that the sorrow will be turned to joy. God does his greatest work in sorrow. Jesus was crushed upon the cross, crucified upon the cross. It was brutal. It was brutal to the disciples. We know the story well, but to try to put it into perspective for them, mind-blowing. When we go through our own moments of crucible, we go through our own moments of sorrow, and it's those deepest points of pain and sorrow and hopelessness, despair, wrestling with depression, that we hold on in faith and go, God's gonna use this pain as we sang tonight, he's going to use all things together for good. What, what does that really mean, that he's going to use things together for good? Does it mean everything's just going to work out perfectly? It means that God's going to use all things for his glory. He's going to use it for good according to his perspective. If the pain of the cross that Jesus Christ went through led to the glory of the Father being revealed, then we trust that through the pain that we go through in life, that God's gonna turn it to joy. He's gonna turn it to celebration. If we don't see it in this life, we're gonna see it in eternal life. We're gonna see how God used that pain. We're gonna see how he used that sorrow. In verse 22, therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. And we can apply that to when we see Christ, either when we die or when the rapture of the church happens. We have sorrow now, but we're going to see the Lord. They, they got to see the Lord after the resurrection. Verse 23. And in that day, you will ask me nothing. You may want to underline that in your Bible. Because when they see Christ risen from the dead, they didn't have any questions. I wonder when we get to heaven, with all these questions that we've been saving up, we won't have them anymore. Just by seeing him, all of those questions will be answered. It's kind of like, Oh, oh yeah, I, I had this, oh, 
you're awesome. But, you know? <laughs> Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you've asked me nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive it, that your joy may be full. This really hit me about six months ago or nine months ago when Jesus says, up until this point, you haven't asked anything in my name. And if you ask in my name, you will receive it. And your joy is going to be made full. So there's something to praying in the name of Jesus. And this isn't just attaching the name of Jesus to all the things that we want with a lot of enthusiasm. To pray in the name of Jesus is to pray in his character or his nature. Now I'm going to pick on Robert, our assistant pastor. Great friend, great pastor, great pillar in our church. He's been on staff here for 17 years at Rocky Mountain Calvary. Now, what if I said, go beat somebody up in the name of Robert Beach? It just doesn't fit, right? Not at all. Go get drunk in the name of Robert Beach. It just doesn't fit with his character or, or his nature. Because we know the character that the Lord's allowed him to have through the grace of God being poured in and through his life. How much more so with Jesus Christ, right? The name of Jesus Christ. Really stop and think about it. Can I attach this prayer with the name of Jesus. We end our prayers a lot of times in Jesus' name, in your name. But what does that mean to pray in the name of Jesus? It's to ask things that are according to his character and nature. God, a desire that my kids would know you in the name of Jesus. Can we do that? Absolutely. That's according to the character and nature of Jesus Christ, that none would perish. God, I definitely need you to make me into a more loving person. Father, would you do that according to the character and the nature of your son? Is that according to the character and nature of Jesus? Absolutely. So here's the question that I have. Have you asked anything in the name of Jesus? And if you have, do you have confidence that God hears your prayers? That prayer is actually meaningful, it's effective, it's powerful, it has impact, it has change. Because Jesus says, if you pray in his name, doesn't say when, but he says, if you pray in his name, you will receive it. At the end of the month here, Monday through Friday, I think it's January 27th through the 31st, we're going to have a week of prayer and fasting. And what that looks like is praying fast on your own as the Lord leads you privately. Fasting is not something that we publicize, we're not going to have t-shirts that say, I fasted on Friday or any of those kind of things. You just pick some time between you and the Lord. But each night of the week, we're going to have prayer meetings, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. And I think it's the most important week of our church to really believe in the power of prayer, to ask things according to Christ's character and nature. We're going to take the first two hours of our workday as a staff from 9 to 11, close the church office. We're going to pray. We want to pray in the name of Jesus. And may God spur us on in the area of prayer. I believe we're living in desperate times. Our response to the times we're living in is to pray. Amen? And to pray in the name of Jesus and expect that God's going to work. The landscape changes as we pray. In verse 25, these things I've spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming where well, I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray 
the Father for you, but the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I come forth from God. We know that Jesus is our advocate to the Father, so it's not that Jesus never brings our needs before the Father. However, the point that Jesus is making here, Jesus is bringing us into relationship with the Father where we have direct access to the Father, and the Father loves us. He's saying, know the love of your Father, and know that you'll be able to go to him and speak to him directly. In verse 28, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. How joyous for Christ to be reunited with the Father. His disciples said to him, see now, you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. But this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Ask the question. They sound pretty confident. Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet, I am not alone because the Father is with me. Jesus knows what's going to happen in the next few moments. He's going to be arrested, go to trial, be crucified. When Christ is arrested, the disciples scatter. John's the only disciple that's there at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They're confident, but Jesus knows what's going to happen. The same's true in our lives. We might be standing all confidently. Oh, we understand. We've got this. We're, we're committed. And Jesus is like, do you really believe? <laughs> in just a few moments, you're going to be scattered. Your, your world's going to get rocked. And this is our last verse tonight. We end with verse 33. These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. Where's the source of peace? Is it in your job? Is it in your citizenship? Is it in your family? Is it in your friends? Is it even in your church? No. The source of peace is Jesus. In me, you will have peace. The Holy Spirit is greater than any external pressure that we go through. Also, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is a source that's greater than any trial of this life. Some of you have experienced it. You know it. You've gone through some real heart-wrenching times. On paper, it doesn't seem like you would make it through, but you've experienced the peace of Christ, the peace of God. The disciples would know this peace. They would walk in this peace. But Jesus is that source of peace. I've spoken these truths to you so that in me, you would have peace. Are you looking for peace in relationships? Peace through your career? Peace in monetary possessions? Peace in, oh, I just need things to go smoothly without challenge or difficulty. That's not the source of peace. The source of peace is Jesus. In the world, you will have tribulation. You may want to underline that and count on that. If you're kind of living your life going, well, I think in three years, things will be easier. Sometimes I tend to think that way. Well, if I make these decisions, da, 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 for this amount of time, da, 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 then that's just gonna result in smooth sailing. Nope. You know when the smooth sailing's gonna come? When we get to heaven. Because <laughs> I'm fallen, I'm sinful. We live in a fallen and sinful world. And in this life, you will have tribulation. Tires are gonna continue to go flat. Hot water heaters are going to go out. Furnaces are going to go out. Roofs are going to leak. 
We're going to lose jobs. The stock market's going to continue to be schizophrenic and bipolar and everything else, right? World leaders are going to do what world leaders are going to do. There's going to be sickness. There's going to be disease. In this world, there's going to be tribulation. I think it's much better to have a realistic perspective of life. To go, okay, I understand. This is a fallen world. This isn't heaven. I shouldn't expect that it's going to be smooth sailing. But this is what we can expect. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. This is temporary. Go back with me where Jesus began. This is all flowing. Christ is sharing this with his disciples. Chapter 14, verse 1. Just turn quickly over there. Because this ties in with Jesus saying that he's overcome the world. John 14, verse 1, says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Let's pray. Father, as we read through,